Welcome to another adult Bible study guide exploring the book of Job. Written by Clifford Goldstein. Edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Narrated by Byron Phillips and Lynette Newhart. Exploration 7. Retributive Punishment. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you, by searching, discover the limits of the Almighty, ascend to His heights, extend to His widths, and comprehend His infinite perfection? Job, chapter 11, and verse 7, the Amplified Bible. The problem of human suffering surely continues to daunt humanity. We see good people suffer immense tragedy, while evil ones go unpunished in this life. A few years ago, a book came out called, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? It was one of numerous attempts over the millennia to come to a satisfactory answer to that problem. It didn't. Many other writers and thinkers have written of their struggle to come to terms with human suffering. They don't seem to have found the right answers. This theme, of course, is the theme of the book of Job. In it, we continue to explore why even good people, such as Job, suffer in this world. The crucial difference between the book of Job and the others, though, is that Job is not based on human perspectives of suffering, though we get plenty of that in the book. Rather, because it's the Bible, we get a look at God's perspective on the problem. In this exploration, we will hear more speeches from the men who came to Job in his misery. Listening friend, what can you learn from them, especially from their mistakes as they, as others have done, try to come to grips with the problem of pain? As if getting a lecture from Eliphaz weren't bad enough, Job then faced one from Bildad, who said something similar to what Eliphaz had said. Unfortunately, Bildad was cruder and harsher toward Job than even Eliphaz was. Imagine going up to someone whose children had died and saying to the person, If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. Job chapter 8 and verse 4, New King James Version. This is ironic, because the first chapter of Job, especially Job 1 verse 5, makes it clear that Job offered sacrifices on behalf of his children for that very reason, in case they had sinned. So, we see a contrast here between an understanding of grace, as seen in Job's actions, and Bildad's opening words, which reveal a harsh, retributive legalism. Even worse, though, is that Bildad speaks this way in his attempt to defend the character of God. Let's listen to Job chapter 8, verses 1 through 22. 
What is Bildad's argument and how much truth is he speaking? If you were to forget the immediate context and just look at the sentiments expressed, what fault, if any, could you find with his words? Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things? And will the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert righteousness? If your children have sinned against him, then he has handed them over to the power of their transgression and punished them. If you would diligently seek God and implore the compassion and favor of the Almighty, then if you are pure and upright, surely now he will awaken for you and restore your righteous place. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will greatly increase. Inquire, please, of past generations, and consider and apply yourself to the things searched out by their fathers, for we are only of yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are like a shadow, just a breath or a vapor. Will they, the fathers, not teach you and tell you? In other words, from their hearts, the deepest part of their nature? Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes or reed grass grow without water? While it is still green and flower and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant when without water. So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish. For his confidence is fragile and breaks, and his trust is like a spider's web. He trusts in his house, but it does not stand. He holds tightly to it, but it does not endure. He thrives and prospers like a green plant before the sun, and his branches spread out over his garden. His godless roots are wrapped around a pile of rocks, and he gazes at a house of stones. If he is snatched from his place in the garden, then his place will forget him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and from out of the dust others will spring up and grow to take his place. Behold, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he strengthen or support evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with joyful shouting if you are found blameless. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no longer. Can you find fault with so much of what he is saying? For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow. Job 8 and verse 9, New King James Version. That's powerful, true, and very biblical. James chapter 4 and verse 14 sounds similar. It says, Yet you do not know the least thing about what may happen in your life tomorrow. What is secure in your life? You are merely a vapor like a puff of smoke or a wisp of steam from a cooking pot that is visible for a little while and then vanishes into thin air. Well, what's wrong with his warning that the godless man who puts his hope in worldly things is really trusting in something no firmer than a spider's web? Job chapter 8 and verse 14. That's about as biblical a thought as one could get. Perhaps the biggest problem is that 
Bildad is presenting just one aspect of God's character. It's an example of being in a ditch on one side of the road or the other. Neither place is where you really should be. Someone can, for instance, focus only on law and justice and obedience, while someone else can focus on grace and forgiveness and substitution. Either overemphasis usually leads to a distorted picture of God and of truth. There is a similar problem here. As a human, you should always strive for the right balance between law and grace in your theology and in your dealing with others. If, however, you were to err on one side or the other, and as humans we eventually do, which side would it be better to err on when dealing with the faults of others, and why? Less than your iniquity deserves. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Job chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, New King James Version. Let's compare those verses with Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 12 through 14. What truth is being expressed and why is it important for you to remember it? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span of the hand and calculated the dust of the earth with a measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or who has taught him as his counselor? With whom did he consult, and who enlightened him? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? The words in those verses are beautiful expressions of the fact that there is so much about God we don't know, and that all of our efforts to search him out by ourselves will still leave us knowing so little. It's interesting that one of the 20th century's most famous philosophers, the late Richard Rorty, basically argued that we are never going to understand reality and truth, and so we ought to give up the attempt. Instead of trying to understand reality, Rorty argued, all we can do is try to cope with it. How fascinating. 2,600 years of the Western philosophical tradition culminates in this expression of defeat. If all our searching leaves us in the dark about the nature of the reality that we live in, then who, by searching, is going to understand the Creator, the one who made that reality to begin with, and so is even greater than it? Rorty essentially affirmed that we just read from the Bible. Yet these texts, profound as they are, were from a speech from Zophar, the third of Job's acquaintances, and he used those words as part of a faulty argument against Job. Listen to Job chapter 11, verse 1 through 20. What is right with what Zophar is saying, but what is wrong with his overall argument? Then Zophar, the Nehemite, answered and said, 
shall a multitude of words not be answered? And should a talkative man, making such a long-winded defense, be acquitted? Should your boasts and babble silence men, and shall you scoff and no one put you to shame? For you have said, my teaching doctrine, that God knowingly afflicts the righteous, is pure, and I am innocent in your eyes. But, oh, that God would speak, and open his lips to speak against you, and that he would show you the secrets of wisdom. For sound wisdom has two sides. Know, therefore, that God forgets a part of your wickedness and guilt. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you, by searching, discover the limits of the Almighty, ascend to his height, extend to his widths, and comprehend his infinite perfection? His wisdom is as high as the heights of heaven. What can you do? It is deeper than Sheol, the netherworld, the place of the dead. What can you know? It is longer in measure and scope than the earth, and broader than the sea. If God passes by or arrests, or calls an assembly of judgment, who can restrain him? If he is against a man, who can call him to account for it? For he recognizes and knows false and worthless men, and he sees wickedness. Will he not consider it? But a hollow, empty-headed man will become intelligent and wise only when the colt of a wild donkey is born as a man. If you direct your heart on the right path and stretch out your hands to him, if sin is in your hand, put it far away from you and do not let wrongdoing dwell in your tents. Then indeed, you could lift up your face to him without moral defect and you would be firmly established and secure and not fear. For you would forget your trouble. You would remember it as waters that have passed by and your life would be brighter than the noonday. Darkness then would be like the morning. Then you would trust with confidence because there is hope. You would look around and rest securely. You would lie down with no one to frighten you, and many would entreat and seek your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail, and they will not escape the justice of God, and their hope is to breathe their last and die. It's so hard to understand how someone could come up to a man suffering as Job is and say to him, basically, you're getting what you deserve. No, in fact, you're getting less than you deserve. What's even worse is that he is doing it as were the two others, all in an attempt to vindicate the goodness and the character of God. Sometimes, merely knowing truths about the character of God does not automatically enable us to reflect it. What else do you need in order to reflect God's character? Divine Retribution Job's three friends 
undoubtedly had some knowledge about God, and they were earnest in their efforts to defend him too. And as we heard, as misguided as their words to Job were, especially given the context, these men were expressing some important truths. And central to their arguments was the idea that God is a God of justice, and that sin brings divine retributive punishment upon evil and special blessings upon goodness. Though we don't know the exact time that the men lived, because we accept that Moses wrote the book of Job while he was in Midian, they lived some time before the Exodus. Most likely, too, they lived after the flood. Listen to Genesis chapter 6 and verses 5 through 8. Though we don't know how much these men, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, knew about the flood, how might its story have influenced their theology? The Lord saw that the wickedness, depravity of man was great on the earth and that every imagination or intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made mankind on the earth and he was deeply grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy, annihilate mankind whom I have created from the surface of the earth. Not only man, but the animals and the crawling things and the birds of the air, because it deeply grieves me to see mankind sin, and I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor and grace in the eyes of the Lord. Clearly, the story of the flood is an example of divine retribution for sin. In it, God directly brings punishment upon those who specifically deserved it. Yet even here, the concept of grace is revealed as seen in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. Ellen G. White wrote too of the fact that Every blow struck upon the ark was preaching to the people. Reference The Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, page 70. Nevertheless, to some degree, we can learn in this story an example of what these men were preaching to Job. How is this same idea of retributive judgment seen in these verses? Genesis chapter 13 and verse 13. But the men of Sodom were extremely wicked and sinful against the Lord, unashamed in their open sin before him. Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 through 32. And the Lord said, The outcry of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see whether they have acted as vilely and wickedly as the outcry which has come to me indicates, and if not, I will know. Now the two men, angelic beings, turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham approached the Lord and said, Will you really sweep away the righteous, those who do right with the wicked, those who do evil? Suppose there are fifty righteous people within the city. Will you really sweep it away and not spare it for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to strike the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike? 
far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right by executing just and righteous judgment? So the Lord said, If I find within the city of Sodom fifty righteous people, then I will spare the entire place for their sake. Abraham answered, Now behold, I who am but dust in origin and ashes have decided to speak to the Lord. If five of the fifty righteous are lacking, will you destroy the entire city for lack of five? And he said, if I find at least 45 righteous people there, I will not destroy it. Abraham spoke to him yet again and said, suppose only 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it for the sake of the 40 who are righteous. Then Abraham said to him, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 righteous people are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Now behold, I have decided to speak to the Lord again. Suppose only twenty righteous people are found there. And the Lord said, I will not destroy it for the sake of the twenty. Then Abraham said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry with me, and I will speak only this once. Suppose ten Righteous people are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of the ten. And Genesis chapter 19, verses 24 through 25. Then the Lord rained down brimstone, flaming sulfur and fire on Sodom and on Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew, demolished, ended those cities and the entire valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. Whether or not Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar knew much about these incidents, they reveal the reality of God's direct judgment upon evil. God wasn't simply abandoning sinners to their sin and letting that sin itself destroy them. As with the flood, God was the direct agent of their punishment. He functioned here as the judge and destroyer of wickedness and evil. However much you want to and should focus on God's character of love, grace, and forgiveness, why must you not forget the reality of his justice as well? Consider all the evil that has yet gone unpunished. What does this tell you about the necessity of divine retribution whenever and however it comes? If the Lord creates a new thing, many instances of direct divine punishment upon evil, as well as blessings for faithfulness, are recorded in Scripture long after all the characters in the book of Job were dead. 
Consider Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 24 and 25. What great promise is given for obedience? So the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear and worship the Lord our God, with awe-filled reverence and profound respect for our good always, and so that he might preserve us alive as it is today. It will be considered righteousness for us, that is, right standing with God, if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he has commanded us. The Old Testament is filled with promise after promise of the blessings and prosperity that God would directly bring to his people were they to obey him. So, we can see here examples of what these men had said to Job regarding God's blessing the faithfulness of those who seek to obey him and his commandments and to live a godly and upright life. Of course, the Old Testament is also filled with warning after warning about direct divine punishment that would come for disobedience. In much of the Old Testament, especially after the covenant with Israel at Sinai, God is warning the Israelites about what their disobedience would bring upon them. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15, the New International Version. Listen to Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 through 33. Here's a question. What does this incident teach about the reality of divine retributive punishment? Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, descendants of Reuben, took action, and they rose up in rebellion before Moses, together with some of the Israelites, two hundred and fifty leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of distinction. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And when Moses heard this, he fell face downward. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and will bring him near to himself. The one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take senses for yourselves, Korah and all your company. Then put fire in them and place incense on them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Does it seem but a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation? to minister to them, and that he has brought you near to him, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? Would you seek the priesthood also? 
Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you murmur against him? Then Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Iliad. But they said defiantly, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land of plenty, flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? But you would also lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you gouge out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Pay no attention to their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I harmed any one of them. Moses said to Korah, You and all your company are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. Each of you take his censer and put incense on it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. 250 censers. Also you and Aaron shall each bring his censer. So they each took his own censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it. And they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting tabernacle with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against Moses and Aaron at the doorway of the tent of meeting tabernacle. And the glory and brilliance of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, so that I may consume them immediately. But they fell on their faces before the Lord and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he said to the congregation, Get away from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, or you will be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the tents of Korah, Dathan and Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents with their wives and their sons and their little children. Then Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I do not act of my own accord. If these men die the common death of all mankind, or if what happens to everyone happens to them, then you will know for sure that the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates an entirely new thing, and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up, along with all that belongs to them, and they descend alive into Sheol, the netherworld, the place of the dead, then you will understand that these men have spurned and rejected the Lord. As soon as Moses finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households 
and all the men who supported Korah with all their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. Given the nature of how the rebels were destroyed, this incident cannot be chalked up to the idea of sin bringing its own punishment. These people faced divine and direct retribution from God for their sin and rebellion. In this case, we see supernatural manifestations of God's power. It seemed that the very laws of nature themselves were changed. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Numbers chapter 16 and verse 30, the New King James Version. The verb creates here is from the same root used for created in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. The Lord wanted everyone to know that it was he himself who immediately and directly brought this punishment upon the rebels. Second death. Certainly, the greatest and most powerful manifestation of retributive punishment will be at the end of time, with the destruction of the wicked called in the Bible the second death. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. This death, of course, must not be confused with the death common to all the descendants of Adam. This is the death from which the second Adam, Jesus Christ, will spare the righteous at the end of time. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 26. The last enemy to be abolished and put to an end is death. In contrast, the second death, like some of the other punishments seen in Old Testament times, is God's direct punishment upon sinners who have not repented and received salvation in Jesus. Listen to 2 Peter Chapter 3 and verse 5 through 7. What is the word of God saying about the fate of the lost? For they willingly forget the fact that the heavens existed long ago by the word of God, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed by being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Fire comes down from God out of heaven. The earth is broken up. The weapons concealed in its depths are drawn forth. Devouring flames burst from every yawning chasm. The very rocks are on fire. The day has come that shall burn as an oven. The elements melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein are burned up. Malachi 4.1, Peter 3.10 The earth's surface seems one molten mass, 
a vast, seething lake of fire. It is the time of the judgment and perdition of ungodly men, the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. Isaiah 34, 8 The author is Ellen G. White. The book is entitled The Great Controversy. That quotation is found on pages 672 and 673. Though sin can bring its own punishment, there surely are times that God himself does directly punish sin and sinners, as Job's protagonists argued. It's true that all suffering in this world has arisen from sin, but it's not true that all suffering is God's punishing of sin. That was certainly not the case with Job, nor in most other cases as well. The fact is that you are involved in the great controversy, and you have an enemy who is out to do you harm. The good news is that, amid it all, you can know that God is there for you. Whatever the reasons for the trials you face, whatever the present outcomes of those trials, you have the assurance of God's love, a love revealed as so great that Jesus went to the cross for you, an act that alone promises to end all suffering. How can you be sure that someone's suffering is direct punishment from God? If you can't be sure, then what's the best approach for you to take with that suffering person or with your own suffering? Let's continue exploring. Here are a few thoughts to ponder and questions to consider. As we heard earlier in these explorations, it's important to try to put yourself in the place of the characters in the story, because doing so can help you understand their motives and actions. They didn't see the battle going on behind the scenes as you do. If you put yourself in their shoes, it shouldn't be that hard for you to see the mistake that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar made in regard to Job's suffering. They were making a judgment that they were really not qualified to make. It is very natural for human beings to think that great calamities are a sure index of great crimes and enormous sins. But men often make a mistake in thus measuring character. We are not living in the time of retributive judgment. Good and evil are mingled, and calamities come upon all. Sometimes men do pass the boundary line beyond God's protecting care, and then Satan exercises his power upon them, and God does not interpose. Job was sorely afflicted, and his friends sought to make him acknowledge that his suffering was a result of sin and cause him to feel under condemnation. 
They represented his case as that of a great sinner, but the Lord rebuked them for their judgment of his faithful servant. Ellen G. White Comments The SDA Bible Commentary Volume 3, page 1140 You need to be careful in how you deal with the whole question of suffering. Sure, in some cases it seems easier to understand. Someone smokes cigarettes and gets lung cancer. How much simpler could it be? That's fine, but what about those who smoke all their lives and never get it? Is God punishing the one but not the other? In the end, like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, we don't always know why suffering comes as it does. In one sense, it almost doesn't matter if we know or not. What matters is what we do in response to the suffering that we see. Here's where these three men were totally wrong. What does the reality of retributive punishment teach you about how to trust in the ultimate justice of God, even despite how things seem now? These three men really didn't understand all that was happening to Job and his suffering. In a sense, isn't that the case with us all? We don't fully understand the reasons for human suffering. So, let's be more compassionate with those who are suffering. ambassadorgroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.